Welcome to Seize the GM. I'm your host, Zended. I am your co-host, Jules. And I'm Gardemoje. Have you ever had a great idea for a campaign? Do you have a group of friends who want to play an RPG, but you have no one to run it? Do you want to see what the world is like behind the GM screen instead of in front of it? Well, we're here to help you do just that. Each week, the three of us will be discussing various GMing topics, terminology, maps, atmosphere, world building, you name it. So sit back and relax. Let us help you. Improve your art of GMing. One show at a time. Better, better, better. And we are entering the banter segment. And welcome back, folks. Holy cow. It has been, I don't know about you guys, but it has been crazy. Life is good, but busy, man. Sometimes it all just comes at you really fast, and you just need to sit down, lay down, take a break, and, and recover your from all sorts of stuff that happens. What, right like, now? Like, like vacations and, and flu and muscle cramps and, and, and uh, hey, I'm alive, everybody. How's it going? <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you had recovery from the good and the bad. The yes. plague bearer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, no, the plague bearer were my uh, in-laws' uh, ch- young children who were sick when we went to go visit them. Yeah, Noel's just the plague carrier. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, that sucks. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, you got to see family, and you know, sometimes that comes with the price of intermediate, you know, infectious disease. Infectious disease. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's that. There is that. <laughs> Especially small children who are just breeding grounds for all sorts of, of pathogens. Hey. You send, them, you send them to school and what happens, but they interact with other pathogen labs and you just get super bugs. They're not <laughs> all like that. Yes. No. It's how they level up their immunization system. Oh, trust me. I do know that one. But my daughter is not as bad as some. You know, though she did bring me the the plague to end all plagues last year. I was going to point out that we do have, you know, historical data here. <laughs> yeah. That one, do you guys, did I ever tell you what happened while I had that fever of 104? Um, I believe some stories you shared with us. Okay, so, so the long and short of it is, is that while working for the company that I currently work for, the Postal Service, I had um, I had sustained a Category 4 concussion. In the recovery process, I lost my ability to smell or taste foods. Long and short, not pitiful, it's just the nature of doing bad things to your brain, like falling on it. So, the funny part is is that when you have a temperature of about 104, your brain swells. Now, the really interesting part about a, a swollen brain that can't smell or taste anything 
can miraculously taste things. Hmm. It's kind, so, of the, kind of the opposite of what happens when most people are sick. Right. But that's because normal people haven't had all of those little connective fibers that embed in the back of your skull ripped out. Mm. So they kind of pushed back into close to where they were supposed to go. <laughs> and so my wife handed me a lollipop, like a, like a frozen pop. Mm-hmm. And I tasted it. And I'm like, you know, I was just like, oh, it's it's something cold and wet. And that's what I need. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, wait, this is like, what fruit is this? Because I'm like telling her it's a fruit. <laughs> I'm like, it's really subtle. Like, it's not lime or lemon because those are really strong. This is something way more subtle. And it was like mango. Sweet. And I'm like, oh, my God. She's like, you can taste this. I said, yeah. I said, go get me some of the chocolate ones. (laughs) Hey, take advantage of the opportunity. Exactly. So the last thing that I remember tasting now is chocolate, like those fudge sickles. Mm -hmm. That's it. That was the last thing that I got to taste. Because like the next that night, like I fell asleep shortly after that. And my fever broke in the middle of the night. And it went right back to the way it had been. Uh. <laughs> I said, so what I basically need to do is keep my temp- my internal core temperature at about 103.8. And I'm totally fine. I can totally taste. <laughs> Duly noted. We'll, we'll set the baking oven next time we're around. <laughs> right. I Even those easy baked light bulbs. <laughs> just bake my brain mm-hmm. yeah yeah so before we get started just who here b- besides me when he said category four concussion imagine Derek's face with a little spinny symbol kind of flowing over to a hurricane oh it was too maybe <laughs> just saying it was too it was it was impressive right so topic <laughs> <laughs> Before we go further down the hurricane route and the idea of our faces being superimposed by, you know, Fujita scale hurricane pictograms, we're going to talk today about choosing a gaming system, but particularly looking at fantasy. Now, wait, why would we immediately assume fantasy? I mean, it is kind of the genre of, you know, the biggest RPG of the RPGs? Whatever. You're totally <laughs> wrong. I mean, it's only like number one and number two. And its descendants populate the rest of the top ten, accounting for over half of it. Look, TSR and Dungeons and Dragons caused the rise of popularity and the prominence of this hobby that we all enjoy. Although, if you're listening and don't enjoy the hobby of role-playing, how did you find us and how can we get more of you? (laughs) So, we're going to start looking at fantasy because it's what people think of. You talk to people about role-playing games, they'll ask you about Stranger Things and Dungeons & Dragons. They'll ask you about elves and dwarves and all of those kinds of tropes. So, we thought we'd start there. It's true. It's true. That was was pretty much why we chose this one first. Yeah. (laughs) 
Because yeah, it, again, it's it is the it, it's the eight hundred pound gorilla in the room because of it being pretty much it's the default the first. Mm-hmm. So that's what people immediately flock to is oh well. I don't want to play one of those weird other games. I want to play Dungeons and Dragons because that's what everybody plays. Now, the history of D&D and the reasons for its popularity are a whole different podcast we'll come back to. Yeah, But it lets us talk about the first thing to think about in considering your fantasy system. What setting are you using? If you are especially wanting to run a game or a story in an established world, is there a role-playing game that is already built for that world and therefore maybe kind of keyed to some of the ideas of what matters there? Well, yeah, because like if you want to run a Lord of the Rings type game, you, you can use Dungeons & Dragons... Mm-hmm. But there actually is a Middle Earth role playing game. Merps. So why would you play something in a so, system that's not exactly designed for it? Yeah. So step one is find that system that's made for your setting. Uh, do you like a Song of Ice and Fire? Are you a Game of Thrones fan? Have you looked at the Song of Ice and Fire role playing game yet? Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Or, you know, if you've read, because, you know, some people come into it from reading books and not just the, you know, Fellowship of the Ring and and all of those, but there's also a very, very large, very, very large collection of books from... TSR, Wizards of the Coast, you know, all of the, the... the Every publisher has had some form of fiction line, and so yeah, you've got stories right. and novels that are out there set in some of these worlds, and they can bring people to gaming. They could be fantasy fans who read the novels and get sucked into the world. Or they've Earth made a Dawn. video game. Right, and what's nice about going with the actual setting matched RPGs is that those books, those stories, those video games are all designed to evoke a feeling and typically the role-playing system designed for that setting is designed to evoke that feeling that comes with it. Yes. Yeah, because if you're trying to run, you know, like, you know, that, but see, that kind of also goes into the not just the setting but also there is that second consideration, which is that the flavor specific to that campaign. If you aren't looking for a specific setting and don't have a start from the kind of feelings and, and themes that that setting evokes, what's the flavor you're looking for? Right. Is it, yeah, is it high fantasy? proper sword and sorcery full-on magic casting wizards and heroic knights are we talking you know gritty and realistic grounded adventures in the vein of a song of ice and fire or uh, some of the other modern works are we talking about swashbuckling piracy 
Yeah, because those the those flavors that come from the setting, mm-hmm. you know, do have an impact on how the rules will play. Because if it's supposed to be super gritty and you're playing Pathfinder, no offense, while I like playing Pathfinder, it is superheroes in a medieval world. By the time you start hitting those, the, the what players consider the fun levels, to the end, you become more and more powerful superheroes. Well, I think that, that you kind of hit it on the head there when we're talking about campaign flavor, in that when you're talking about something like Pathfinder, the fun levels are those superhero levels, and identifying what that fun flavor you're trying to hit is, is kind of what this consideration is all about. Right, right. Because if you want to play like it, Warhammer is a perfect example. If you want something gritty and dark, Warhammer is a go-to for that. And Warhammer Fantasy. Those of you listening may not know that there is actually a fantasy version of the Warhammer setting and world that is the basis for that game. And, and it's it an is, RPG. It's fun. It is a <laughs> lot of fun. Dwarven Assassins, let me tell you. <laughs> but like Noel was talking about, that that idea of where you're having the fun. Because some people may want to have a role-playing game that's kind of a tactical war game where you want to be in charge of countries and get involved in high-level conflict. Okay, we can do that. There are games for that. We just need to know when you're figuring out what you want, how to choose that system. Yeah. Or maybe you really want a narrative-style game that is, you know, we talked about internal and external focuses of campaign design. If you've got a really internally focused campaign and group of players who want to really hone in on you know, what it means at an individual level, a narrative system might be a better choice for how to do what it is you want to do. Yeah, because, it, yeah, if if you're trying to tell a really in-depth narrative story. Something like Pathfinder that uses a five-feet tactical map for every combat, just about. Rules is written, you know, because you don't have to do that, but rules is written, it's, it's super tactical, and it's all on the individual movements of the people on the battlefield. You're not going to get as much of that as you would with a a much more narrative type of game like Blades in the Dark. (laughs) And those, those things matter when you're trying to figure out where that campaign flavor for you sits. Mm -hmm. Because if you're trying to do it, the way you evoke it is partially through the system, partially through how you're presenting everything. Well, and that's something else that we're going to explore in more detail at another time is you know, playing against type. We talked about it in relation to horror and, and how to evoke horror in games that may not appear to be uh, 
systematically or crunch based in favor of it. Yeah. We're going to look at how to play against type in other systems in another show, but you can take a game like Pathfinder with its heavy crunch, with its absolute focus on such minutiae, which for a lot of people can be a lot of fun, and turn it into a narrative-based game where all of those decisions aren't right. in, but they aren't inherently part of the story, but are part of how you get there. Yeah. Because those those do matter, and and it's okay to have that, and, and especially if you want to play off type. But yeah, that's something that we will have to discuss in its own show because it's it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, and that brings up kind of the next pair of things. The third, our consideration, the third is your player familiarity. How familiar are your players with the system or the setting you're looking at? Yeah. Because if if your players don't know the system, we talked about this. <laughs> right, well, when it comes to player familiarity, if you're talking about jumping into a game system they know or one that they don't know, that will kind of pull us between the second and third option as we're talking about do they want the flavor of learning this new game to interact with their theme that they're going for? Or do they want to stick with the comfortable while exploring whatever theme or flavor they're trying to hit? Yeah. Well, yeah, and you can go back and re-listen to episode 38. That was where we talked about introducing players to new games and kind of how to do that. But it comes down to that communication question. Do they want to play in a particular world? I mean, I've got an example in the show notes about you know setting a campaign in Mythic Egypt where you're the cat's paws of Bast in, in a campaign against Apep. And <sighs> Seriously? That's the one you went the with? The cat's paw of Bast. Uh. Okay. Now that the groaning <laughs> and laughter have both subsided, because I couldn't resist that. I know. But if your players want to be swashbucklers and sail the ocean blue, it's going to be a hard sell, and that may not be the right setting mm-hmm. that you're looking at. And so maybe switch it up. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, for example, there's talking about, you know, winning games that are like a kind of balance between strategic and narrative you know there's the game i've promoted plenty of times on here the burning wheel campaign which is a complicated system for players to learn and it kind of designing around do your players want to be that involved with controlling the narrative themselves versus having you kind of guide them through the narrative yeah yeah because burning wheel is good for for forcing the player's hand mm-hmm. in what they're going to do for real. Like, I mean, it's yeah. part of the system built in. Exactly. And it's all about kind of, you know, if they're comfortable with the system, then maybe they will be happy to jump in with kind of devising the narrative, but maybe not if they're kind of newer to it. Yeah. And I can see that because, you know, not everybody is going to be like, 
I am totally down for, for doing that. And other you'll have other players that are just like, this is the best idea ever. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, well, and there, t- there are times that you've got to also factor in schedules. And we've talked about this before. Those of us talking uh, are probably past our heyday of gaming. And some of you listening may not yet have found that there are time constraints on your sessions. If you're more like us, you may need to figure out what games allow you to resolve or what systems allow you to resolve conflict faster because your players may need to be coming over after an office job to play to then go back home to get a full night's sleep to go back to the office the next day. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I I I feel the pain on that one. <laughs> well, and that kind of chains towards you know the last or fourth consideration we kind of put up in the notes, which is GM familiarity. It, it's the flip side of this player familiarity, and don't overlook the question of how much you are ready to learn to run this game. Uh, does the system and the setting appeal to you? I mean, do a lot of us come from the, well, for the game I want to play to exist, I have to run it era of gaming. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and that's not always the case anymore. So if you're not jazzed, if you're not excited, if you don't have a verve or something that makes you want to run this game, maybe you should look at a different system. Yeah. Yeah, because there is there is something to be said for uh, do I want to be involved heavily in learning a whole new system? And I'll be honest, my group kind of had hit a wall in our playtest. Mm-hmm. And we actually dropped the play test with the last two sessions left like the last two adventures because it stopped being fun that brings us right back to consideration number two campaign flavor does that meet your expectations and And, familiarity of the two of you and and this is you know it was a game that we knew we but it was a new addition and we've been play testing you know pathfinder second edition and in the early days, I know I was, I couldn't say enough good things about it. And the further along we started getting, the more it was just like, oof, wow, this is, this is getting tougher and tougher. And because everything, they kind of started leveling everything out the same. So nobody was like super high versus super lows. Like everything was kind of fell in this medium range. Everything was. And you could really see it the higher you got. And I started just to be like the last session. We just tried to chew through it as fast as we could. And when I got back from vacation, we were supposed to start. We played one other session and I was just like, okay, I think we're done. Because I'm just like, 
this has become it became a chore and as a GM that is something you should really keep in mind is don't forget that it's supposed to be fun for you too well and an example of another way to you know kind of watch that familiarity is you know I, I have sung the praises of the hero system time and again on the podcast and they've got a fantasy hero skin version of it but it's another crunch heavy game and it requires a lot of thought ahead of time to design certain things if you're not pulling it straight out of a book it's a fantastic world it's a lot of fun but are you going to be comfortable putting in that level of work that it may require versus something like fate where you can set up your world and have greater buy-in from your players and not have to prepare maybe quite as much. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's those are, you know, really really key things. Um as you know, we we keep teasing that something else is coming for the show, but I actually sat down and we We've started the recordings, and I have, right now, I will have two that have never played the game before, and I have two that are, or three, that are seasoned players. Preferably salt and pepper on both sides. Salt and pepper and garlic. <laughs> like I said, I have three. Um, and then there's me, which I know the system that we're running in. And that is going to prove interesting because they have they have familiarity with gaming, just not this particular game. Again, that player familiarity. And we're definitely all looking forward to hearing it when it comes out. But before we move on, I, I want to ask you two and just kind of say, see, what fantasy games have you played? What are some of the fantasy genre role-playing games that in your storied career as a player and GM have you enjoyed? I mean, the aforementioned Burning Wheel. <laughs> yeah. Getting to sit down and help devise the narrative in a system that lets you go, yeah, I'm going to say this is a rule, and if I succeed the rule, it's exactly how I want it. And if I fail the rule, it's exactly how I want it, except bad things also. Yeah. That is one of the cool things with, with Burning Wheel. And sadly, I have not gotten a chance to actually sit down and play it, and I probably yes, that means someday I'll, I'll have to try to run it for this. What? Someday. That's <laughs> someday. not a promise of a date. That's not a promise of a date and or time <laughs> or year. However, <laughs> or, decade. Or, or decade or decade. Yeah, I mean we're pretty close. So yeah, or decade. <laughs> it could entirely be twenty thirty one. It could. Hopefully, it's not. Um, we'll have burning wheel platinum by then. I know. But Zen, what about you? Um, 
honestly, this is going to sound really bad, but it's also part of my really old school. Just say it. <sighs> Basic D&D. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, nothing wrong with that at all. Um, either basic D&D or first edition AD&D. And part of the reason for that is, is because so much of it is really hand-wavy. It's, it's about telling the story. Because there weren't rules for every single you know, perfect thing that had to happen. Half the time, people didn't even worry about where a map was. You know, it was, everybody just played. There wasn't the worry about, you know, oh, well, can I move that five feet? It was just like, I run up to him, you know? (laughs) Swinging my sword and, you know, calling upon the vengeance of, you know, Ignog the the blunt headed or whatever, you know. I mean you, you had a lot more narrative control in those games. Because you could just be like, well that's part of my backstory. And most GMs were a lot more flexible. And maybe it was also that we were kids. So we didn't feel like we had to be constrained by rules. Because we all grew up playing, you know, cops and robbers and, you know, the the politically incorrect cowboys and Indians, you know, and the rules were just kind of like, I shot you. No, I shot you. This just added a you roll a die. And if you got above this number, then no, you actually did hit them. (laughs) So, I mean, that's part of, I think, why. I've always felt that there was something special in that is that it gave you a lot more flexibility to do things that you couldn't do in other games. I did. Especially nowadays. I think you are overplaying your hand and overstating things and just being kind of grumpy. (laughs) But I will actually go back to what I just mentioned and having had some fantastic campaigns and experiences with Fantasy Hero, which is the exact opposite of what you were describing because it is a well-defined world but is also a very well-defined crunch. And you can do anything, but it's with what I call that radical transparency of the hero system that shows you how much everything really costs in their balancing system. And it was a fun way to be able to also scale between low fantasy and high fantasy. It's easy to do in that system and to put on certain restrictions. It it was freeing in a way uh, where you actually were able to have better role-playing experiences because you weren't worried about outsmarting the system because the system was just there. Yeah. I can see that. I mean, like I said, there's nothing, you know, it's just personal choice. Some people are more comfortable with 
a more defined set of rules. And then there's others that are just like, I don't really... The rules are just there to keep people from throwing fists at each other. (laughs) Because, again, it's, you know, cowboys and Indians. I shot you, no, I shot you. And I, I think that's kind of why... There, there's, they both work. It depends, again, on what you as the GM or the player are more comfortable with. But that's a consideration we'll come back to in a later episode or Patreon exclusive, where we get further into the debate between whether or not modern games are sufficiently open world or not. In the meantime... Let us know on the Facebook group or on Twitter or Instagram what you think about choosing a fantasy setting or system, and more importantly, which one is your current favorite? Yes. Oh, current favorites would be awesome. I can Love to hear wait. them. All right. Well, let's go ahead and roll on into Steplocks. And now we enter Stat Blocks. This is a segment where you can use something that we've created in your game tonight. Okay. Um, I Zenko. will not... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we've reached an impasse here. Damn it. It's one minus one. <laughs> so I'll go first. No, I'll go. I don't mind. <laughs> you can go second. Okay, I'll go second. Okay. All right. The Book of Pale Light. The tapestry begins to unfold and waver in the wind. It's a very thin sheet of vellum, long and wide. This is just the cover to the true evil within. What could be so evil? Catching a glimpse of the cover underneath, the outer cover, white, like the fresh-fallen snow. Once you catch the glimpse of the cover, the runes and sigils of containment shimmer into being on the, the vellum, just in the range of colors you're able to see. The book is nothing if not simple and elegant, at least until you crack the cover open. The scrawling texts and images cover every inch of the work. The more you read, the harder it gets to stop. As you read more of the words, spark new ideas in your mind. But where to put these thoughts? Oh, there's a small little spot open in the margin. And you start to fill it, and the ideas grow and blossom like a cancer in your mind and need to get put down here in, in this spot. Oh, oh, in this spot. The ideas won't stop coming. The open area on your arm could hold that idea Oh, in this diagram. Here, let, let's put this in the book. The book slips closed as the last of the flesh goes in. Nothing marring its wonderfully clean cover, the dried husk of its hand twitching as the owner of the book slips in to retrieve it and take it back 
to the lost and dangerous book collection. Till once again it finds a new helper to add to the book of endless flesh, or the book of pale light, as it's called by those uninitiated. Very nice. Very sinister. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Feeling we're going to have a certain tone with these tonight. (laughs) All right. Okay, my turn. Your turn. The Wheel of Chance. It's divided into eight sections, each one a separate but vibrant color. In the middle of each section is a circle, the width of the segment. Regardless of distance from the wheel, the face of the closest eight humanoids will appear in these circles. The expression on these faces vary from wildly happy to suspicious to fearful and enraged. When in the presence of the wheel, humanoids will find a compulsion to spin the wheel. If multiple people are in the room, this compulsion seems to take a turn, one by one, until each person has spun the wheel at least once. Alone, the spinning wheel does nothing beyond evoking this compulsion to spin it again and again in turns. Who's ever turned it will not want to leave the room. And often the last person must be dragged out as they clawed every surface until they spin the wheel once more. But if a token is added to the wheel, a sigil or marker, To indicate a section for the wheel to land upon, the wheel becomes active. Anyone who has spun and whose presence is still on the wheel will immediately seek out the face the sigil points towards and drag that person back so they may spin. If they land on another's face, then the cycle continues. A new player must spin again and again until someone lands on their own face. At that point, they've won. And the real game can begin. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I like it. Ha ha ha. <laughs> All right. Go to Manger. The Undreaming Sigil. Memories hold fast to the form they have fixed. Every day, every place, Everyone sees something that is a fixed point of emotions and the weight left in this world. Every one of you passes by something that holds the power of hearts, the power of dreams, and the terror of fear every day. It was supposed to hold back the darkness. The sigil and the shield was meant to keep us all safe. Nobody could say just how only that it was all we had left. Nobody could say just what it was, only that it was what was left. A time before, but one that we didn't know, a time before that wasn't recorded, why did we think this would work? Because the memories held fast in the glyph. The memories were the way. It wasn't until the very end, when the walls fell and the planet was lost, that the truth was apparent. We had to send out memories, hopes, and fears into the sigil's pattern. We had to hide from the world for thousands of years. Now we feel it. 
the sigil is reforming in these buildings and these plants. The glyph is being brought back to free us or for you to join us in our repose. <laughs> uh, such a good tone today. Such a good tone. <laughs> right? We all went dark. Halloween hangover. I know. It kind <laughs> of is. Like it, it just, there's no other way of explaining it. Also, for some reason, did we all watch the same TV show talking about sigils? I did I mean, not watch any TV shows. I actually... I, I mean, I had a weird dream, and then there was this marker, and I kept inscribing it again and again and again and again. And I don't know. I just kept I need a pen. Haster, Haster, Haster. I mean... Oi, oi, oi. <laughs> yeah, listeners at home, we did not actually plan this, but all of us ended up using Sigil in our uh, stat block this week, and it was just one of those moments. Yeah. <laughs> but... Now that we've given you something to chew over, something to think about, something to use in your game tonight, it's time for us to consider words. Lexicon, where we give you cool words to help improve your vocabulary. Okay. I got one. What you got? written down here. Verdigree. Okay, I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess. Okay. It's it's a type of sauce. Could be. Makes you dizzy, but it's a type of sauce. Okay, okay. It it is a type of sauce. So- you can use it as a type of sauce. Awesome. Okay. I feel good about myself now. <laughs> no. I, it it will be the sauce that you can use for the rest of your life. Oh, uh, that sounds ominous. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's green something. Okay, but I. I, I mean, it's, well, it, it sounds definitions. like it sounds like green gray from French, and I know verjou, which is green juice, which is you know grape, crab apple, sour, acidic juice okay. or wine. So uh, it sounds like green gray. Okay, here we go. This is what we've got. It is. The original definition is a green or greenish blue poisonous pigment resulting in the action of acidic acid, acetic acid, acetic, okay, copper and consisting of one or more basic copper acetates. Uh. It's normally copper acetate, so. C-U-C-2-H-3-O-2-2. So in water. it's the soup for the Statue of Liberty? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Um, and another one is a green or bluish deposit, especially on copper carbonates formed on copper, brass, or bronze surfaces. So it's that weird color that forms on copper. If you've ever seen an old penny, yeah, that that got that kind of weird greenish bluish discoloration from it being okay, yeah, okay. And it actually okay. So here we go. Now it is Middle English from Verdigris, which is borrowed from Anglo French, 
which is uh, Vert de Grace, which is literally the green of Greece, the country, <laughs> because they used lots of copper. Mm, that makes sense. So the current form reflects the French Vertigris or Vertigris with the Delta final Gris. syllable assimilated from Gris or Gray, which is why you think why you said Green Gris. or Gray. That I yep. was uh, say I correctly heard the French and said I still speak enough of it. Yeah, but that's fun. That's a nice word to throw in. Yeah, and it is from the 14th century in the original, like, first definition. So, it, which is the poison thing. Yeah. And the it is the bottom 30% of words. I believe that. So, which, when I see, and I, when I first saw the word, I'm like, oh, I know who this is. <laughs> Were you thinking Vertigorm? No. There's um, in a podcast that I listen to and I've listened to for a number of years now, the Secret World Chronicles, one of the characters in there's name is Vertigree. And he is the evilest of evil guys. Well, okay. Yeah. Let me get back up on that one. Oh, it's so good. It's gotten really good again. So fair enough. But I think we're going to go ahead and do some closing remarks and wrap this bad boy up. No, what you got? Well, first of all, I managed to, while I was sick, catch the entirety of the Dragon Prince. I think, Armante, you had mentioned it in passing when talking about Avatar Cup episode back? Uh, yeah, back in July. Yeah. So... This is a Netflix exclusive. It's from some of the writers of Avatar, like the main writer of Avatar. Okay. And it's got pros and cons. It's definitely something I'd recommend people to check out. Uh, it's got a little bit of a weird animation style of the way they handle their kind of 3D animation. But the story itself is fun. It's got some interesting characters. They do have a little bit of a problem with some of their B stories not quite paying out, but the beginning and the end of the season that we've watched was really good. I do have one warning, though, for people who have watched Avatar. If you love the character Soka from Avatar, it's great because every character is him. <laughs> Everyone. <laughs> Now, if you did not like his character from Avatar, I have bad news for you. Because <laughs> every character is him. Is him. Yeah. I, it's, a, I, it's a lot I enjoyed of it. Yeah. yeah, I enjoyed it and had some similar takeaways. I, I had my own quibbles and quips of, of what I didn't enjoy so much on it. But I think it's got a, a really strong start for what I hope to see get a, a full arc, full story. I agree. I, I think if it had the full 20-episode season that Avatar had with each season, we would have gotten a lot more of the world-building that Avatar was able to give us. Oh, God, it was but, so good for that. 
Well, right. but I also think that we're going to see instead of four seasons and the four elements that we had in Avatar, you know, a number of seasons tied to part of that story, and, and you have to watch to find this out. And mm-hmm. so, I think they are going to follow a similar path where a physical part of the world will be revealed, which will lead to larger story telling and story building. I think you're right about that. Uh, That's it. Uh, I do have my second remark I just want to toss in there. You should probably get your flu shot if you haven't already. Because, man, the strain this year, it's not pretty. It's very not pretty. Highly recommend flu shots. Especially if you're going to be around young relatives. Because, oh my gosh. (laughs) Remember the story from the beginning of the episode, folks. Yeah. (laughs) You don't want to have 103 degree fevers. They're not fun. Not at all. Okay. Well. Next up. um, I will go ahead and do mine. And it is the Starfinder core book. Um, It's actually really... I mean, it's old now. But... I have been looking at it. We actually just are getting ready to start a new game of it. And I am taking a break from having to run for my regular Saturday group. And one of the guys was like, oh, I'll run something. And he was like, we'll just do this. And it seems to be a really fun like science fantasy interpretation of the Pathfinder rules. And at first I thought I was going to be like not real sold on it. And then I actually sat down and we made characters the last time. And I actually made the suggestion to people that they should go look at <laughs> Gardevoir's card catalog if they needed yes. characters. So, um, <laughs> instead, what I got to make was a uh, Sheeran uh, Technomancer. Oh, fun. Yeah, who has the Ace Pilot theme. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so my yeah, character's... Say- the pilot for the group. <laughs> Starfinder, the core book, the crunch, the fluff, the layout and design all impressed me. And so, yeah, we've got a link in the doodly-doo to the card catalog write-ups we did for yeah. Starfinder earlier this year. Yeah, it's it's really fun. And as it goes on, I will be able to drop more as to what, I, what my true feelings are about it as a system. Neat. So, yeah. All right, go to Moje. Let's go ahead and wrap this puppy up. What you got? Well, I'm going to go with a book, a novel, Magic Kingdom for Sale, Sold. It was Terry Brooks' uh, beginning of the Kingdom of Landover series and one of his first non-Shannara novels. It is a really great example of fantasy world building where it's a character who steps into another realm, a magical kingdom, and we have this fantasy world that this person from Earth, this lawyer from Earth, has found himself somehow in theory the king of, and 
it builds it out, and it's got a whole series. And I, I hadn't paid attention to it in some time, and found out that uh, we are now up to a fifth book that came out in 2009. I uh, didn't know of any of them past the 1995 uh, four, and there's going to be a sixth one to close it off. And I really am especially fond of uh, Parsnip and, and Bunyan, who, well, you just need to read to understand why I love Parsnip. But I uh, highly recommend Magic Kingdom for Sale Sold, and if you like it, there are a whole series of books yet to come, yet for you to read on that. Oh, cool. Sounds fun. Yeah, that sounds really good. Well, all right. I think this kind of wraps it up, folks. So, until next time. Keep playing those games. Roll dice and have fun, folks. Bye-bye. You can contact us or the show using Twitter, Facebook, or plain old email. Our Twitter accounts are at Zendead, at Jules Podcaster, and at 2050GardMoget. And the show's Twitter account is at SeizeTheGM. You can find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash SeizeTheGM. Or chat with us and other RPG lovers in our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Seize the GM. You can email questions or comments to the show at admin at seizethegm.com. And if you have a few bills you want to send us, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. And we thank you. joining us for this episode of Seize the GM. Feel free to leave a comment about this episode on our webpage www.seizethegm.com Let the dice fall where they may, and we'll see you all again next week. Seize the GM is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. All copyrighted materials referenced herein are held by their respective owners. No infringement intended, and no claim of ownership is implied. The music for the show is Dreaming Spirit off the album Ghost Machine by the Enigma TNG. His music is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license.